Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis and the top journalists actually this week uh, from Health Tech. So um, yeah, we're bringing you a lot this week. Uh, our special guest is Kai Nicole Schwartz. Uh, I also have Jessica and Jess here from the Somex team, but Kai, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing good, James. You are far too kind um, and it is it is lovely to be here. Mate, we, uh, I remember the very first time I messaged you on LinkedIn because I was reading your articles for a while and I was like, oh my God, there's actually a journalist that like understands health tech and like gets it and writes good pieces and does this, sifted do this lovely analysis at the end of their uh, articles and it's always on point. It was great. Like I loved it and uh, just like fangirled you a bit. And now, uh, and now, and now here we are, you come to our events, like, you know, on our podcast, delighted, mate, delighted. But um, yeah, health tech, what, what, um, what attracts you to, to writing about health tech? Why'd you do it? That's a really good question. Health tech is, it's one of these sectors in tech that I think touches all of our lives, right? Um, I think, well, there's loads of interesting stuff that happens in deep tech and fintech. A topic like health tech is so, it's very understandable. It's very relatable because it's something that all of us um, are involved in in some way. And so it's easier, I think, to make that jump from, you know, just being a journalist or whatever to diving into a topic like health tech because there's a part of it that we all get. Um, and currently we're, we're kind of at this inflection point where we've done healthcare kind of the same sort of way for the past 2,000 years, right? Kind of since Hippocrates. We've done patient goes to a doctor, tells the doctor their symptoms. The doctor says, this might be what you have. Take this. And we're kind of realizing that we need to change it up. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Alan Milburn, who was the, um, the health secretary for um, one of Tony Blair's governments. And he was saying that we've reached a point there where the, the healthcare system just isn't really fit for purpose anymore with the amount of people that are using it. Um, and the only way really to solve this is through preventative and predictive care. And that's pretty much at the heart of what almost any health tech you'll see is doing at the moment. Absolutely correct. Um, and the sustainability as well, it's, it's, it's frightening, isn't it? When you look at the rising costs and the rising expectation of people, preventions are, it falls into a really interesting space. It is crucial, but who pays for it? What are the business models? Like, is the NHS expected to move into it? Of course, in part, but people put their hands in their own pockets to optimize their health and then they stay away from the system. So that's kind of a good thing, but should that be expected? Probably not. It's, it's, it's all over the place at the minute, but I totally agree. It's, it's a really exciting time. And what more relatable than our first story that we want to talk about today. So let's get into it. Our first story this week, written by Kai Nicole Schwartz, no coincidence. Uh, does size really matter? $80 billion sex tech market still too taboo for VCs. Society's changing its attitude towards sex, but investors haven't got the memo. Kai, you wrote this. Tell us what's going on. James, the long and short of it is size doesn't matter. Um, the sex tech market is huge. It's really, really big. It's worth, or some, someone said it was worth $80 billion at the moment. It'll be worth $120 billion 
in a few years' time. That's about three or four times the market size of, and this is a slightly clunky comparison, the pet tech market. Um, <laughs> but it's raised three times or a third of what the pet tech market has raised. So there's this like massive, there's massive gap in market size to to what VCs are willing to are willing to put into it. Um, and it's probably like worth first just discussing what like what sex tech actually means because it's a really really broad spectrum. Um, and you've got on the one side you've got like the functional side of sex, like startups which are helping people with erectile dysfunction or vaginal dryness or making condoms or lube. Um, and then you've got on the totally other side of things, um, the pleasure side of sex. So that's startups that are making sex toys or audio erotica. Um, and there's very different things at play really with, with both of these. Um, but the bottom line is that vice clauses and institutional investors' unwillingness to back a topic like sex means that for most startups, the opportunities to scale just aren't really there. And as you mentioned, society has shifted its attitude towards sex somewhat over the past few years. You know, we're nowhere near the place we need to be, but it's, but it's moving. So you are seeing more startups pop up at early stages because more founders feel like, because more founders feel comfortable launching a business in sex tech. What we still don't see really is startups scaling. Because obviously, you know, as an early stage founder, you go in and you raise from angels or you raise from family offices. Then you get to like seed series A level and you need more money. So you need to go to VCs, you know, institutional investors have the biggest tickets. Um, and there are like, there are a handful, less than a handful of VCs in Europe that have backed sex tech in the past few years. There's maybe one or two that have backed more than one sex tech startup in the past few years. The ones that I can think of off the top of my head are Calmstorm, which is a Vienna-based health tech firm, and Octopus Ventures. Um, but other than that, man, it's like, yeah, it's pretty barren. You talk there about, I guess, the spectrum of sex tech. And what strikes me is actually, we talk about taboos. And, you know, we recently had an event on women's health, and it, it sounds quite a lot like we're seeing some similar challenges reflected across women's health and in sex tech and there's clearly an intersection there because ultimately we know that you know women in general are underserved by you know sex solutions i suppose sex tech um and and a lot of those challenges are i guess similar where where they're trying to get funding and they're trying to do that that scaling piece and so i guess my question is do you think that like how significant do you think that intersection is here and and i guess impacting perhaps that that piece in attracting the funding the scale but also do you think that there's certain types of sex tech that people are or i say people but you know vcs are more willing to invest in is it more on that kind of consumer and pleasure side or is it more on the kind of health and wellness side of sex tech is that is there a difference in disparity there there is. Um, and it's a really good question. And there's, there's a few different points to consider here, really. Um, and on the one side, something that kept coming up again and again and again when I was interviewing founders for this piece was that for, for startups that say focus on pleasure is a difficult enough sell as it is. For startups that focus on something like women's pleasure, where there's so little data around this, 
Um, and also you're pitching to most of the time middle-aged blokes who have got no idea and just have got no like, understanding of what the pain points around this are. Um, so already you're trying to sell a narrative that middle-aged blokes don't understand exists. On the second hand, you know, you're, you're a woman as well in, in this environment where we know women struggle to pick up investment because it's, it's so one-sided in VC because the decision makers in VC are so male. So you've got that really potent mix um, that makes it really, really difficult um, for, those, for those startups. But on the other hand, if we look at the sort of functional side of sex and then the pleasure side of sex, um, the startups that have raised the most over the past few years have been, say, period tracking apps like Flow and Clue or erectile dysfunction startups like Newman, and they've all raised in the tens of millions. You won't find a pleasure-focused startup in Europe that's raised anywhere near that. And that, to some extent, is a problem with Europe, because in the US, things are a little bit more open, and you have got startups like Dame, which is a sex toy startup, which has raised about 11 million. But the problem still remains, you know, if you're trying to peddle pleasure VCs won't have it. There's a really interesting line in this, Kai, that you've obviously written. So what's stopping investors from putting their money where their mouth is? Well, one reason, and you talked about this just now, you mentioned it certainly, is vice clauses, which are restrictions set by LPs, who are the folks that invest in VCs, give VCs their money, on where their money can be invested. They often cover things like tobacco, fine, guns, fine, and sex, which is in that category of vice clauses. And the quote here, we're hitting a brick wall with VCs, and we've had comments like, our LPs would never back something in the adult industry. You can't negotiate with the LPs won't back it line. So interesting that, that A, sex would be part of tobacco and guns and in a vice clause uh, category, but then to kind of amalgamate sex with the adult industry, I mean, okay, adult industry, okay, but technically that might be correct, but that has broader conversations of pornography and that kind of thing. So it's there's, there's a lot here, isn't there, that I think there's so much gray area. And we mentioned at the start about society and culture, and it feels to me like there's a long way to go for us to talk about sex and sex tech and what adult industry means and to consider what the signal might be by an LP declaring that that is or that isn't, you know, in that vice clause restriction. I think it's just a really fascinating area where clearly there needs to be a lot more clarity and actually a lot of good is prevented from being done because of the fact it's an adverse signal currently. And that, I suppose, is where even conversations like this on this podcast help, because we can start to try and break that down a little bit, right? It's a really good point, because someone someone said to me, you know, tobacco, guns, they take life out of the world, sex brings it into the world. <laughs> um, and it was a great point, because grouping those three together is outrageous. Like, that's, that's a ridiculous, a ridiculous part of or a ridiculous symbol of the society that that we live in, and that the people with 
the money consider these things equitable because they're not. The second part of your question um, about LPs considering the porn industry or the adult industry with being synonymous with, with sex is, is another big issue. And I think a lot of investors turned off by sex tech because they just automatically assume that anything, anything in that sector is going to be one of these quote unquote adult products. Um, and that means that even startups, which are, you know, focused on sexual therapy um, or erectile dysfunction or digital therapeutics for anything between the belly button and the knees is, um, is lumped in alongside other stuff that's, you know, kind of, I guess, on the more controversial side of sex tech. And that's not in saying there's, there's anything wrong with being on that more controversial side of sex tech. Um, but it's a far, it seems like a far simpler argument um, to say that startups on that first side um, should, be, should be raising money. But you're right, there's, there's still a massive gap in what people are willing to back. Absolutely. The difficulty is clear, but you know, the way that you've concluded this, these challenges create exceptional founders. It's a quote from someone else, but that is true. Um, having to think outside the box, having to market themselves incredibly well, having to face prejudice in certain areas, all this mentioned in your article, but clearly it's an area that a lot of good can be done. It's a taboo area. It's important that we talk about it. So Kai, thank you for writing the article and I encourage everybody listening to give that a read. So our second story this week, Asabis Partners announces a new 100 million euro first close for a health and biotech fund. It's going to look to back around 12 to 15 startups in the UK, Europe, Israel, and the US. And it is not every day that we get a brand new health tech fund, particularly not one of that size. And so this is relatively exciting. And you've written about this again, Kai. So yeah, tell us, what have you learned in writing this? Asabis partners are, yeah, one of the, one of the few health tech funds to, to launch in the, past, in the past year. And, you know, I mean, we all know how the past year went. From June onwards, it was a bit of a short show. Um, everyone was kind of realigning and kind of up in the air and didn't really know what was going on. And it's, it was it was really interesting when I was when this all started to go when this all started to go wrong in in June or the markets shifted. I spent a lot of time speaking to to founders and investors, and what a lot of them pretty bullishly told me was that you know health tech's fine, health tech's immune from from market downturns. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was that was 100% accurate. You know, if we look at we look at the figures, I think I think last year, health tech dips, like maybe 40% or something on on the funding figures from from 2021, um, which is more than which is more than average, and that does sound not great. But um, that was actually mostly at later stages, and at pre-seed and seed stage. Um, Actually, the amount of funding was was pretty similar across across both years, um, and we have seen other health tech funds emerge as well. Um, Wiser was um, Wiser announced, which is a Berlin-based health tech fund founded by one of the founders of Teleclinic, 
that launched last December. There's another one just has just been announced in the past couple of days on social media called Loop. Um, and there have been a few others that, that have been dotted around. It'll be really interesting this year to see how many more emerge, whether or not this market's seen as something that is, in Europe at least, kind of a worthwhile venture. You know, climate tech is really, really sexy at the moment. And it's whether or not health can kind of remain on par as being a really valuable, genuinely valuable thing. Absolutely. And I wouldn't mind having a little chat to these guys because they are they are firmly positioning themselves in health tech and biotech. Looking at what they're doing, they want to focus or they're particularly interested, should I say, in investing in startups working on diagnostics and therapeutics in things like women's health, neurology, chronic disease, oncology, cardiology, immunology. So it's, it's interesting that relatively specific, some of those, you know, cardiology, relatively specific, oncology, obviously broad, chronic disease, obviously broad, neurology, relatively specific. Um, it's, it's a nice and interesting thesis. And looking at some of the stuff that they've backed, um, owner therapeutics, developing novel therapies for metastatic cancer, raised 30 million, um, Iceland's digital therapeutic startups, Sidekick Health, 55 million series B, um, gut health platform, Cara Care or Sara Care, however you pronounce that, raised seven million dollars in June. So, like, yeah, really, really interesting. They've backed thirteen companies in biopharma, medtech, digital health sectors. So, um, yeah, really, really, really interesting fund. This and will be exciting to see what they get up to. I was just going to say, I actually don't think that cardiology is super niche. Um, on the basis that it's an area where that pharma have been really focused on for quite a long time and in part because we know that cardiovascular disease is one of the fastest increasing non-communicable diseases worldwide and significantly affects people in the western world as well and obviously it's coupled with things like obesity and numerous other like more I guess like lifestyle diseases um, and conditions like that. So I, I don't actually think that that's super niche, and I think it probably relatively astute for them to to have that as one of their areas of focus because I do think that there's been a lot of discussion about how do we tackle this, especially from that preventative side. But I haven't actually seen a great deal of movement or solutions, I suppose, that are really tackling that head on and. Um, I think it's, you know, there's there's big scope to make a huge impact in, in cardiology care over and above just like heart diseases, for example. Um, we know that the impact spans far greater than that. So I think it's cool. Um, I also think it's probably worth mentioning that, you know, another fund that has popped up is Stephen Bartlett's where he's been not necessarily talking mm -hmm. specifically about health tech, but it does include biotech, it does include health. And I, I don't think that, you know, it would be remiss to say that health tech is probably a, a significant partner, but uh, interesting as well that, you know, you've got someone coming, I suppose, from a less obvious background to be investing in a space like that. But uh, I think that's probably a broader conversation to be had about Stephen Bartlett at the moment anyway. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that one for another time. Asabis Partners, they're going to they're gonna stick two to five million euros into 12 to 15 startups in UK, Europe, Israel, US, as I say, health tech, biotech, that kind of thing, all those areas that I mentioned before. They're also going to reserve quite a lot of this fund for follow-on by the looks of it. 15 million euros they're looking to invest in in follow-on rounds two. They seem to have a pretty good network of co-investors. Um, Pfizer, 
uh, going in for the Series B of Agomb, Agomb AB Therapeutics. Anyway, 45 million Series B. Um, that got participated in by Pfizer. So clearly uh, embedding themselves in the space very nicely. And if you want to get in touch with them, that is Asabis Partners. All right, our next story this week. Rory Keflin-Jones. Is the NHS app the answer to everything? Uh, Jess, you've had a read of this. Yes or no? Is the NHS app the answer to everything? So yeah, first of all, I want to shout out Rory's Substack, always on. If anyone's not subscribed to that, then I would highly recommend subscribing to it because it's a really interesting weekly read. Um, and the first interesting thing that I learned from this piece is that if you want to encourage tech adoption amongst the English public, then just tell people they can't go to the pub unless they've downloaded the app. And that will really supercharge your tech adoption. Um so, yeah, Rory mentions how there were 30 million downloads of the NHS app during COVID, um, during the time when it was mandatory to have a COVID pass to go and do anything. Um, so, yeah, if anyone's trying to tackle some tech adoption challenges, they might want to look to some of those lessons. But, yeah, so Rory mentions how there's talk of the NHS app starting to play a bigger role as a kind of one-stop shop for patient information. And he says, that, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Centralisation is necessary. Patients don't want to be logging in to numerous different platforms um, forgetting all of their passwords and having to have lots of different apps on their phone. Much more efficient just to have one central app, um, which is easy to use. Um, and he talks to a couple of people who are kind of experts in the app. So there's Chris Fleming, who's at Public Now, but used to run the app as a programme director. And Axel Heitmuller, um, who works for Imperial College Health Partners, um, which is an innovation consultancy. Um, and the two of them like have some really interesting thoughts to share on the NHS app. So... Um, from Axel, he says that um, one of the big problems with the app is that they're just trying to take existing poor processes and switching them from analog to digital rather than being truly innovative and creative and thinking with a bit of a blank sheet mentality about the best way in which we could use the app to like really give like patients a positive experience. So I think he's slightly critical of that. Um, and there's a great quote from him, which is, everyone is just rehearsing in their own little corner, but we're not really making music. Uh, the NHS is described as a directionless orchestra, which can't decide which piece to play. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> yeah. The general conclusion from this article is, if we can do this right, then it would be fantastic. We're a long way from doing this right at the moment. Yeah, that's been, that's been a, a pretty heavy criticism of, I think, a lot of health tech over the past few years is that it's, it's kind of not, not changing anything, or there's some startups or, or, or some tech isn't really changing anything. It's just doing the same thing, but in front of a webcam. Um, <laughs> and I think that the startups that, the startups that really get the most hype and the most praise tend to be ones that are doing something around digital therapeutics, which is, um, which is doing something differently, you know. Um, we've kind of moved from like drug based therapy to app based therapy, which is a little weird, but also quite cool. Yeah. I also think that there's something to be said for whether or not the NHS has the capabilities or just generally is able to develop the best content. So if we talk about like providing patient information and that kind of thing, you know, from, from the work that we do, we know that you know, yes, okay, there's some great information on the NHS website. But actually, if you really want to find out, you know, I don't know what's going to happen 
when you have a knee construction, like you're going to A, Google it, and B, you're probably going to look on a site where, like, I don't know, you visit more often. And I know that there are publications that like consumer publications that are sharing personal experiences and like easy to access information. And the NHS is not known for that. And so I wonder if actually one of the parts of their success is going to be down to collaboration, working with other organizations to bring the best information and accredited information, much like we know that YouTube Health has created their health shelf um, for video content. But those kinds of collaborations to bring the best information to the NHS app rather than the NHS being responsible for creating that information. And clearly there still has to be an accreditation and, um, you know, validity uh, process to make sure that the information is accurate and appropriate but yeah I just don't think that they're necessarily the best people organization organizations to be sole creators of that content and I, I think there are other people who are doing a really great job of that that would make it way easier for the NHS and the NHS app and that would make it way more successful and I don't know how much that has been considered I'm not saying it hasn't. I just, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. But for me, that seems like a really obvious way to go. But I also know that there's logistical um, <laughs> and practical challenges that come along with that, as we know that any kind of interoperability and integration into the NHS anyway. But yeah, NHS app is an idea for you. Come chat to me. Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, to tech adoption in an organization like the NHS because it's like huge, like massive. Um, and I'm going to go back to Alan Milburn, who I've become his biggest fan apparently over the last half an hour or so. Um, but he was, he was saying that during, during his time as, um, as health minister, um, he, he, he went into the job thinking that you could centralize it all. He went into the job thinking that if, if the organization was structured, in the right way, it could be done. And he left three years later, and that was completely shattered, that opinion. And he came to the conclusion that it, it's too big an organization. There's too many different, like there's just too many differences between them. And this, this is a big problem, I think, when you're trying to throw in a digital layer to the NHS, because companies, tech companies look for scale, right? That's why VCs back tech companies, it's because they can scale really quickly theoretically and health techs that plug into the nhs it's really difficult i think to get that sort of scale really quickly that's what makes it more of a difficult sell in places like europe when you're pitching to vcs with with a health tech and saying we're gonna we're gonna plug into the public public healthcare service because they're really difficult to work with that's why so many startups if they want to hit scale and when they get to a point where they're looking to hit scale go to America because it's it's simpler. Do you know, we actually talk about that quite a lot here at Somex and you know the fact that ultimately the NHS is not a, a commercial business model if you want to succeed and actually you're far better going off and improving the product proving the solution and and building your commercial model elsewhere and then bringing it to the NHS once you've cracked it somewhere else whether that's another market whether that's another industry or you know sector for example um but outside of that public sector i guess remit where you know as you say it is so hard and you know so many startups 
die in that space because it is just so difficult to penetrate. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe there's something to be said for, you know, perhaps it's going to the US or, or, or considering another commercial model and actually the work that those kinds of organizations do with the NHS becomes more of a CSR program because ultimately you're not, you're not going to be able to get the scale that you need in order to be able to make the impact that you want to have if you're exclusively focused on just the NHS. And there are clearly exceptions, but I think by and large, that is generally what, you know, what we're even seeing from our vantage point. And do you think, do you think startups can hit genuine scale in Europe in spite of the fact that most of European healthcare isn't run on the same commercial model as a startups are? I don't know is the answer. I, I, I don't know. I think the, it's su- it's such a it's such a tough question and i think the way i'd probably answer that is okay let's look at the evidence now we did all our clients most of our clients are uk based there are some that are increasingly us based but therein lies a lot of the evidence in that when our startups in the UK raise their money, they think they've got their eye on the US. Now, the US is further away geographically than Europe, but there are far more challenges, I think, for a UK startup to try and scale into Europe, where there are multiple different health systems, multiple different models that would need to be formed. And looking at the way that they want to do it doesn't really match up with that. If you look at something like Health Hero, the way that they've done it is just through acquisition, right? Um, they've just gone in and just just said, right, we're primary care. Now let's just buy up like local teams doing local things in a local way that understand on the ground. And we will just, you know, merge the financial documents at the back and share opportunities and create efficiencies and, and do all that stuff. Um, that's me butchering that business model, which is obviously clearly a fantastic one. I know Ranjan, et cetera. It's an incredible business, but that's the way that they've done it, right? Like that they, they are doing it that way. Someone with a tech platform that then wants to land in all those different geographies in Europe and go to the Czech Republic and then Slovenia and then Romania and then France and then Germany. There's this, this very practically quite difficult, but if you're VC backed, you need the scale. So what's the obvious thing to do? Well, the obvious thing to do is to then go to the US. Um, because yes, okay, it's wildly different, but it's one business model change and give or take what you do in various states um, to get around various policies and regulations, et cetera, that might be different to federal. But ultimately, you're doing far less customization per region, per geography, per site than you would be doing across Europe, I suspect, and far, you know, zero language barrier. But it's a tough, it's a really tough question, man. But I think the VC-backed startups just need... They need the scale. They're not going to achieve it in the UK full stop. And to, and to your point, Jess, you know, that this try going to another market become, before coming back to the NHS because the commercial models are different. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, that's, that's advice that could and should be heeded in many circumstances. It, it's just a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Given, given the opportunity that we have with the system that we have that, with it being, you know, relatively centralized, albeit fragmented, and every organization can kind of do what they like, but all under one logo, that if there was joined up governance and policy and and incentives that allowed for innovation, the NHS could be 
an incredible place to test innovation safely and to do that in a way which push things forwards. That would be absolutely, it would be wonderful. Um, and I know there are many organizations trying it, like the HSNs and accelerators and all these people that are trying to put that infrastructure in. Um, but ultimately, Kai, I don't think there's any getting away from it that if you've got VC money and you've put a, you've put a market size down on that pitch deck to, to close your 10 million round or your 50 million Series A, ultimately, I think many will have an eye on the US rather than Europe. Although you might tell me differently, I don't know. No, I think... I think for the most part, you're right. Um, I think in Europe, there's, there's maybe one man who thinks health tech is maybe scalable. And that could be Daniel Ek, who's the, the Spotify founder. We've been reading that article this morning. Yeah, who's just, who's just launched Nico Health or just publicly launched Nico Health. One of our brilliant journalists, Mimi Billing, managed to get the scoop months ago. Um, but yeah, so this is, this is preventative care. Um, it's some sort of a sci-fi box that you go into and you hear lots of weird noises and then it Uh, looking at that article, by the way, and this is really lowering the tone, um, the scanner looks like the beam from Star Trek. It really does. And they artificially they artificially put the hum in as well um, to make it really feel Star Trek-y, which is super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but I can, t- I can tell you now, Kai, clinicians everywhere will be listening to that and going, hold on a minute, you're taking what might be completely healthy people and putting them in a scanner taking 50 million data points from them and you're telling me (laughs) that all of those 50 million data points are going to come up as normal for anyone probably not so what burden are you about to drop on the healthcare system now that speculation i'm sure they've got sensitivity and specificity that is going to say that normal is normal and slightly abnormal might not be slightly abnormal, but the human body is an incredibly complex thing. And to take an X-ray where you might not need to in an NHS hospital is considered sacrilege. You do not do it. If you don't need to test for it, you don't because the inevitable happens and you find something and then you've got to test more for it. And then you've got to CT them. And then you've got to MRI them. And then they've got to get treatment for something that was never going to cause a problem in the first place. And so I think, I, I, I hope I speak for quite a lot of clinicians anyway, that, 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 that are sort of squeaming a little bit at this, going like, oh, is the Swedish healthcare system now going to get inundated with a load of extra stuff from this private clinic? Um, I don't know. But it is super interesting. And Mimi's article I read it this morning too. It is it is really good. And um yeah, the the conclusion of it's interesting. So I uh yeah, definitely encourage people to to read it. But um oh yeah, it's a funny one. I don't know, Jess, what do you think? Would you get this done? No, I'm a big believer in like blissful ignorance. I yeah. do not want to know. And yeah, no, I agree that there will be a lot of now people who are worried about things which would have caused them absolutely no problem if they're just left it alone. And we do not need more worried people in the health service at the moment. I can tell you from a house of doctors, Jess, um, 
with that mindset yeah. definitely yeah I was very much raised <laughs> with the like if you if you are not actually dead then you're fine mentality <laughs> the human body will probably fix itself um yeah but yeah no it is fascinating so Kai did Mimi so Mimi obviously flew over there and like got it all done so you said it was months ago it was quite a while ago that she did it yeah Mimi had no need to fly there oh, she, she lives out in Sweden um so yeah initially she she went over to the um, to the building where this kind of unassuming building where this new clinic is, it was being built at the time. And she kind of had a little walk around, saw lots of bits and pieces as they were, as they were being built. Um, and then, yeah. And then we kind of, we kind of seen, seen the story develop to a point where they came out very, very recently. And, um, and publicly, nice. publicly announced it. I, d- I did really enjoy the end of the article because, um, for anybody in health tech, I think I think this is like relatively poetic, in that on the way it's 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 it it can do about nine people a day, so it takes just over an hour. So they're they're looking at taking about nine people a day, and the article basically ends with like she should only have one person waiting, obviously to go in. And the article ends that when she came out, there was two people waiting that obviously looked at each other, going like, "Well, you're not meant to be here. Well, you're not meant to be here." So even Daniel Eck and the latest and greatest Star Trek health innovation can have a simple double booking error. It's wonderfully, wonderfully poetic um, that if it's happening to you guys listening in your health tech startups, you are not alone. It happens to the best and greatest of us all. Um, So simple double booking in what is the latest high-tech clinic that exists on the planet so um yeah solace to us all i feel there cool so our final story today uh, a new wave of startups are tackling financial issues within the healthcare space um business insider has given us 14 of these companies to check out um jess you've taken a look at this uh tell us what have you learned in reading this one yeah, so anyone who regularly listens to this podcast knows that Henry gets very upset when fintech gets more attention than health tech. So I was slightly nervous to be talking about this piece, and I'm actually quite glad that Henry's not here um, <laughs> to get upset about it. Um, but no, after reading this piece, I was definitely convinced that fintech and health tech are quite natural bedfellows, um, especially in the US, where money and access to healthcare are completely intertwined. Like you really can't separate them. And the stat in the piece is that the US is spending, the average person is spending over $12,000 um, per person on healthcare a year, um, which is obviously a huge amount. And this has triggered a new wave of startups that are tackling financial issues within the healthcare space. Um, and yeah, there are 14 listed in this article and there's a real real array so there are some more patient facing products so like daylight grow which is finance planning for lgbtq plus people who are planning to become parents um which as yeah most people know is a very expensive journey anyone who's been through a fertility journey realizes that a lot of people are kind of blind to the costs when they go into it um, and really get very far through the process and then run into all sorts of financial difficulties. So I can absolutely see that there must be a huge market for products that support people who are like considering the process. And then they also highlight more like B2C products. So there's accounting and budgeting tools um, for healthcare practices. And yeah, an, an array. So yeah, kind of the the message from this piece is that 
yeah, that investors are seeing the potential of products that bring together fintech and health tech and that there's a massive demand for it in the US. Yeah, did anyone else got any opinions? Should should health tech and um, fintech work together or should they very much stay in their own lanes? Um, yeah, the, the, the one reflection I have on that, Jess, is I guess a feeling of relief that in the UK, rarely do we have to combine those two things. And I think that might be a kind of, I don't know how to describe it. Is that a naivety or is that, am I signaling in some way? I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not trying to be like righteous about it. Like we're so great in the UK about that. I'm, I'm genuinely just a bit glad that we get the opportunity to separate the two, because as you've said, you've talked about the problems and the challenges there a little bit for individuals. And that's, I don't know, it just, it's uncomfortable for me, like hearing like the, the amounts of money that people have to spend and, and the challenges that people have and the, and the requirement, the fact that the market is created to merge those two. Um, obviously, I don't know huge amounts about it, but it, I, I just, yeah, I'll share that. I just had this re- feeling of relief, I guess, that rarely yeah. in the UK do we have to combine those two fields, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, as... As someone who's lived abroad um, for a couple of years, it really hit me very hard when I went to the doctor and was told that I needed blood tests and scans and, oh, yeah, that'll be $500, thanks. And I was like, whoa, sorry, $500 for like some scans and blood tests? And I was like, we do not appreciate the NHS enough in the UK a lot of the time. Just the fact that we can have a health concern in the UK and then that doesn't automatically equal financial problems too. Um, so I think we definitely do not appreciate as much as people from other countries the that link between financial resources and being healthy. But yeah, so we're in a we're in a privileged position over here, and I think that's probably why people don't consider fintech and health tech to necessarily have much overlap over here. But in the US, they would naturally go together. Kai, I imagine it's not something that you write about a lot, is it? If you're covering UK Europe stuff, although you might. No, James, you've. You've got it right, really, um, because culturally we we don't pay for healthcare um, in this part of the world. It's yeah, it's it's paid for by the state, um, and I think yeah, I think I I hear what you're saying when you kind of mention how how uncomfortable the idea of linking health and finance um, is because because it is, and it feels like as soon as you get questions around affordability involved in basic healthcare, it's pretty much a one, a one track ticket to a kind of two tiered society when you've got the wealthy who can afford to stay healthy and you've got the poor who can't and that's, and that's it. Um, so yeah, I think writing about finance and health is, it isn't something that I do that much as Sifted because we pretty much exclusively cover European startups and tech. Yeah. An, an interesting topic but um yeah so yeah I, I guess i'll just reflect on that and like the, the feelings that that just evoked of like relief and you're right jess that you know the brain only sees contrast uh and actually if you've only ever known healthcare that's free you know we're not going to appreciate it oh you'd, you'd appreciate it once it was gone from the sounds of things you know if you suddenly got a bill through the post um every time or even just the knowledge of how much things did actually cost uh, it might make us all appreciate it a bit more. Yeah, I think having a having a health problem is anxiety-inducing enough, and when you have to couple that anxiety with then 
not only am I unwell, but this is going to massively impact my finances. Like that's a whole nother level of anxiety that probably will exacerbate the health condition in many people's situations. Totally. Um, well, thank you everybody for listening this week. That was the health tech news. If you want to grab any of the links to any of the stories you've just heard, you can head over to www.healthtechpigeon.com to get all of those and subscribe to the newsletter. Kai, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for writing the articles that you do. Uh, They are informative. They are excellent. can highly recommend anybody listening to listen to them. Before I let you go, uh, what's on your agenda, man? What's coming up? Like, what are you writing about? What are you interested in? Uh, Are you ranking your health secretaries from like one to three, like one to five, like top health secretaries? Because... You seem to have an affinity for Alan at the moment. Like, I'm interested in like where does Hancock <laughs> rank Hunt? You know, like, yeah. I look forward to that article anyway. Yeah, it's going to be a long list, and a lot of them are going to be towards the bottom. I think certainly in the last twelve or thirteen years. In the next few months, what am I working on? I tell you what, and I've had this this kind of article idea in my mind for a while, and I want to look into like startups that are using equipment that was used during the height of COVID, during the height of the pandemic and lockdowns, like. PCR testing machines or infrastructure or software um, and are now reapplying it for slightly different things. And there's a couple of great examples like Day are using PCR testing machines um, when they're um, testing the vaginal microbiome, which is such a cool use case. Um, and Ali Health, which is a diagnostic startup, are also doing some bits and bobs. Um, but I want to find I want to find more of these startups. Nice. Sounds interesting, man. Like there must be so much infrastructure that's currently just sat there doing nothing. Um, but similarly, probably quite a lot that's been repurposed to doing something. So why not? Um, can't say it's as interesting as your top list of health secretaries and, and their contributions and what you rate them, but you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure it'll be a good article, mate. Um listen, as I say, absolute pleasure having you on. I'm delighted and we'll uh, we'll definitely get you back. Uh Thank you, Jess and Jessica, for joining me. That has been the Health Tech News this week. We'll see you all next week. Bye.